So again, good evening, and I'm uh, pleased to be here. I'll introduce myself a little more fully. Uh, my name is Donald Rothberg. I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, uh, also on the uh, Guiding Teachers Council uh, here, and I've been practicing in this lineage, in this tradition, for uh, over 40 years, since I was pretty young. And uh, it's been a very central part of my life, and have also um, explored quite a number of other traditions, have practiced a lot in the uh, Tibetan tradition, particularly uh, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, some of you know those traditions, and um, have been very influenced also by Jewish, Christian, and indigenous traditions. Uh, I lived for four years uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. I taught at the uh, university there, and I would spend a lot of time at the Monastery of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was a monk. So got very, uh, very strong influence from contemplative Christianity. And... Uh, also, yeah, I actually go back to the monastery every year. I teach in Kentucky every, every fall and go back to the monastery. Also quite influenced by Jewish tradition. That's my own particular heritage and have uh, one, at one point lived in a kind of, we called it a neo, neo-Hasidic commune. <laughs> so I lived in that. It was so a lot of emphasis on Jewish mysticism, and that's, so that's been an influence also through the uh, emphasis on social justice, a lot through my parents. And then have also been um, quite influenced by indigenous traditions. For a lot of years, I co-led the uh, sweat lodge and meditation with Fred Wapapa that we did here and have also uh, been invited into a few different indigenous communities for, for periods of time. So have, a, I think, a broad, broad view, and also have had a um, strong interest in addition to traditional practice, which has been important for me. I actually have spent a good chunk of my life on retreat, you know, probably... It probably adds up to seven or eight years. And, uh, but I've also been very uh, interested in how we connect this with daily life. And so I have an interest in the connection of meditation and psychology and a lot of, lot of work on speech and communication, relational practice and so forth. And lastly, I've had a, a strong interest in how we connect all of this to again, social service and social change, and have been, was involved for about, uh, have been involved for about 15 years, uh, developing uh, training programs for people to connect inner work with social service and social change work through uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, through Spirit Rock, and also through uh, a graduate program, which we did at Saybrook Graduate School for about nine years which was an interfaith program called Socially Engaged Spirituality. So those are, those are some of my interests and uh, live in locally in Berkeley. Uh, and many of you as well just found a, a neighbor lives two blocks from me. Very nice. So, 
So I was, I was uh, wondering what theme to talk about, and I decided to talk and explore, talk about and explore the shared heart of the teachings of the Buddha and the uh, nonviolence of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And I'll actually, at this point, I'll turn a photo around, which I had here, which I had the other, facing the other way so as not to spill the beans, so to speak. And um, it's a very timely topic, I think, for a number of reasons, and one that I've been very interested in and teaching some about in the last period of time. So I thought it would be a very good topic to share. It's also, as I mentioned, very timely. Some of you know that uh, we're still within the week of the anniversary of Dr. King's uh, assassination, April 4th, 1968. And many of you know probably also that a year before that, he... In 1967, also on April 4th, he gave a very pivotal speech in New York at the uh, Riverside Church where he came out very forcefully against the war in Vietnam. And so it's very timely for those reasons. Also, I think the theme that I'm exploring really points to the way that our inner practices can connect with our responses to the world. And those responses, I think, are very much needed now from everyone. The response on bringing more wisdom, more awareness, more care, more love into the world in whatever ways you do that. You know, individually, in your interactions, in your communities, but also on this uh, larger scale. And then lastly, I also wanted to connect the theme with the fact that uh, Passover in the Jewish tradition is starting imminently, like tomorrow. And uh, it's also uh, very much connected with this, that Passover is really about... uh, confluence of spirituality and liberation and social liberation. And, you know, Dr. King himself, we could count as being in what we sometimes call the prophetic tradition, coming from the Jewish prophets through Jesus, through a number of people. And King certainly was a powerful prophetic figure, so very much in that stream that's connected also with Passover. So a lot happening right now. And I think uh, uh, a timely topic. Um, The rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a great figure who marched with Dr. King, he said that the future of America depends on its response to the legacy of Dr. King. A strong statement. The future of America depends on its response to the legacy of Dr. King. And I thought I'd just say a word about my own uh, personal relationship. Um, My parents were very involved with uh, 
civil rights and issues of race. You know, my mom, when she was like 15, living in New York City, they were scheduling a prom at a hotel that had not permitted the African-American singer Marian Anderson to perform. And my mom was part of a boycott effort at age 15. This was 1939, right? And so, and then later was very involved. Uh, uh, later, the, I grew up in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C., and they moved to Richmond, Virginia, where she took a position for about 10 years helping with uh, what were then called race relations in the city of Richmond public school system. At one point, if I, if I have it right, was actually the leader of the efforts to work with issues of race in the entire public school system. She did that for 10 years. And so that has been an influence. They also went to the march on Washington. I was a kid. They invited me to come, and my brother and I wanted to play. So we didn't go to the 1963 march. We missed the I Have a Dream speech, though. Anyway, these things happen. (laughs) I'm sure we enjoyed playing. So, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's been a strong influence, and I've met many of Dr. King's, uh, you know, colleagues and senior lieutenants, people like uh, Bayard Rustin, uh, James Lawson, and so forth, and studied a lot with uh, people who are trainers in nonviolence, very powerful area. In fact, uh, good to mention... uh, uh, a colleague, Kazu Haga, and I are going to do a three-day non-residential retreat over Labor Day here on the, th- on the same theme of connecting Buddhist practice with, Gan- with Gandhian and Kingian nonviolence. So I don't have flyers, but that's, it's, it's upcoming. And I, as, as I mentioned, I think it's very crucial for our time, this connection of the inner practices in particular that we get from uh, Buddhist tradition and the ways of interpreting spiritually grounded nonviolence out in the world as a way to work with conflict and injustice that we get from Dr. King, there's a kind of natural complementarity that in Buddhist tradition, the emphasis historically has been on deep interchange, often in the context of community, so we have teachings on speech and, and community, but there actually isn't a concept that comes anywhere close to the concept of social justice in Buddhism, on my understanding. You know, there's, there's interest in having social conditions be good, but there's, there's just a different emphasis. And then similarly, in, when you look at the uh, traditions of Dr. King, there's, and, and that kind of nonviolence, a little bit different with Gandhi, but with Dr. King, oh, there's an emphasis uh, on inner prayer and on that kind of focus, but we don't have the kind of extremely rigorous contemplative tradition that we have with Buddhists. So there's a natural way that these can come together. You know, in many ways, the Western contemplative and mystical traditions have been somewhat marginal for the last three or 400 years. You'd have to go to like that monastery, the monastery of Gethsemane in Kentucky to find something like that, you know, or 
Uh, I, had, I had friends who were looking for Jewish mystical traditions who spent years trying to find authentic teachers. They're not quite available. Here you could just say, okay, what's happening? Monday night I'll go to Spirit Rock and you can actually link in to deep traditions that go back 2,600 years with, with, uh, with teachers who have been pretty well trained, if I do say so. So... Uh, very, very natural, uh, very natural connection, and I think very important for our times because there's a way in which some of the prevailing models of social change and social justice are reaching their limits. Ones that are based on a certain amount of self-righteousness, uh, polarization, even use of violence, demonization of the opponent, lack of empathy and so forth, we're seeing a lot of those limits. And those, in many ways, are not going to work very well with the current conditions. We need to have that spiritually infused way of uh, responding strongly on a social level. And I think we, we've seen some examples of that in the recent past. You know, there some of the examples, some, if you, anyone has followed what happened at Standing Rock, uh, where my understanding is that the elders guided what was happening there. And they said every action has to go together with ceremony and prayer. And they said, we will not go on the warpath. <laughs> meaning that there is more of a sense of collaboration, a lot of stories of tremendous connection and empathy at times with the police and so forth. So there are examples like that that are, that are there. And what's also not so well known is that actually uh, people, you know, social scientists who've done studies have found that, you know, when they look at change, they have found that uh, nonviolent movements, even in relationship to the most repressive regimes, have uh, uh, statistically twice the level of efficacy as violent movements. They're twice as effective at, at actually reaching change as violent movements. And there are a lot of other differences, but that's interesting. And there's the, some of those uh, studies also showed that uh, movements that are able to mobilize 3.5% of the population or more, and they looked at a lot of examples, you know, in different countries, any movement which is able to mobilize 3.5% or more always succeeds. Okay, got it. So, are you part of that 3.5%? That's the question, right? That's a very, that's a very optimistic uh, reading, isn't it? Right? So, um, that's very interesting. What I, what I love is that there's a really a shared heart when we look at Buddhist practice and look at what we find in the nonviolent approach of Dr. King. And I thought I'd play, I brought some recordings of Dr. King speaking. And I want to play at least one of them, maybe two. And I wanted to play one right now, which is um, 
if you listen to it, listen for the theme. Some of the themes I'm going to go into in looking at that shared heart include the, the emphasis on the wisdom dimension and understanding what causes harm, what causes violence, the emphasis on the strong ethical approach of not harming others, and then finally connected with the theme of love and loving kindness as something that can motivate us all the time, including in social action. Dr. King thought that the approach of nonviolence is actually all resting on the power of love. You know, love is not just something private, but something that can be brought into the social arena. Some of you may know the statement of Cornell West. He says, love is the public face of justice. Interesting comment. Right? So this is Dr. King. And listen for some of those themes. This is Dr. King reading from the letter that he wrote while he was in the Birmingham jail in 1963. Some of you maybe know this text. Um, and this letter is written in jail. He did not have a laptop. And he did not even have writing paper. He wrote this letter on the edges of newspapers because that was all that he had. Okay? Thank you. 
a lot there. Maybe you also reflected that uh, so much is still very relevant, right? So much is relevant. So I want to point to some of the, what I'm calling the shared heart of these two approaches and really point towards the value of bringing them together, of studying both. Of really uh, working in these two ways, and uh, the first area I want to point to is that there is in both of these approaches ultimately a very uh, optimistic view of human nature. 
that in Buddhist tradition we have we often point to the possibility of awakening as being there for everyone, being there for all beings. That the example of the Buddha doesn't point to him being somehow special and unique, but it's something that's available for everyone. That option of being able to develop, to awaken, to, to develop in wisdom, to develop in kindness, to develop in love. And we find that expressed in many different ways. Uh, Mahayana traditions talk about Buddha nature. Some of you know that. That the, there is a sense that deep in our being it's, are the seeds of awakening. And that we can, with the proper cultivation, touch those and cultivate, water those seeds, as it were. There's a sense of deep in our being, there being a quality of what in the Buddhist tradition is called the radiant factor of of heart and mind. That there's a sense of radiance in our being that can be touched. This is what can be touched in practice, in meditation. And we can know that, you know, that we often say that uh, there may be clouds around, but there is actually a sun that is more basic than the clouds. And again, those of you who've practiced have known that there are these moments where you can feel the radiance of your own being, where you can feel the shining quality of your heart, of your of your mind, the luminosity. We use terms like luminosity and radiance. And in the Buddhist tradition, very interesting, it's said that every being, certainly every human being, has this quality of radiance, but it gets covered over. Even people who have done quite bad things have that. And so there's a sense of the universality of this potential for love and wisdom. Really pointing to almost like a very clear developmental model for human life. We just need to keep developing. But even people who do quite awful things have this nature. The understanding thus is, is that the roots of suffering are fundamentally in ignorance. Not because they are somehow irreducibly bad, but because that goodness gets covered over. And this is also an understanding that you find with Gandhi and King. King talked about the amazing potential for goodness in people. And he also tended to see those in the opposition as really being caught in ignorance. You know, he talked about the Uh, particularly he talked about the white working class people. He's talked about how they cling to thinking that whiteness makes them better. When in actuality, they are actually pawns, really. They're being used, right, by the people who have power. He saw that, and he actually had a lot of conversations with people, and he said, you know, they have this sort of fleeting sense of being better, But in actuality, 
they're doing pretty badly economically. They can't, you know, they can't make a lot of their ends meet. So he had that sense. He had that sense. He wasn't seeing these are simply bad people. There's a lot of empathy, a lot of care, you know, and that's connected with this, what I'm calling an optimistic view of our nature. And what we do in practice is that we know that very deeply ourselves. We know increasingly our own nature as having that radiant quality so that we, we know that those people we have some problems with, their radiance is covered over. And they often bring out our radiance being covered over as well. <laughs> right? And so that's, that's, a very, that's a very common theme. This is from Gandhi. He said, belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. From the point of wisdom, there's also very much a shared view. And there is a really a core principle that's at the basis of both Buddhist practice and nonviolence. And we can express that view quite simply. It's the view that the roots of violence and harm are in reactivity, are in people reacting to harm that's done to them, and in a sense passing on. That violence in this nature is cyclical. We see this in the world, right? It's in today's newspapers, right? You can see that. And there's a sense that the aim of our practice, this is true for Buddhist practice, true for nonviolence, is to cut the cycles of reactivity, of violence, to end those cycles. And this is something that occurs at the level of the individual, at the level of relationships, and at a social level. There's a... Uh, teaching, which is expressed, I think, in really in both traditions, and I thought I'd I thought I'd give versions of this in in both the Buddhist traditions and the traditions of nonviolence. Um, this is from the famous text called the Dhammapada, from the Buddha. He said, "Hatred never ends through hatred," and sometimes that's translated as "violence never ends through violence." He said, "By love alone." Does hatred end? This is an ancient truth. Sometimes translated, this is a primordial truth. That hatred never ends by hatred. Right? And you have exactly the same understanding in the Buddhist tradition. I mean, sorry, in the uh, traditions of nonviolence. This is from Dr. King. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. Echo, 2,600 years later. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love, love transforms with redemptive power. You know, and you may remember that many times he said that by love, he was talking about something pretty powerful. It's not about being nice, Right? Talk about, he sometimes said, love is not about emotional bosh. 
or, or being nice. It's something very strong and powerful. There's a wonderful teaching, which is one of my favorites in the Buddhist tradition, which expresses this in a way that we can really apply to our own minds, to our interactions with people, and further in the social realm. And this is the teaching um, called the Teaching of the Two Arrows. And anyone who's heard me teach knows that I give this teaching about every other time I teach, if not more frequently. (laughs) And so here's the teaching of the two arrows. So listen to this. This is when I first heard this, I said, I was kind of electrified. So it's an amazing teaching. There's my advertisement. Okay, so here's the teaching. Okay, the Buddha was in conversation with some of the practitioners around him. And he asked him a question. He said, everyone experiences at times something painful, something unpleasant. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? Okay, so see what your answer would be. Everyone experiences the unpleasant. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? Sometime I'm probably going to stop here and just see what everyone's answers are. But anyway, among the group that the Buddha was working with, no one answered, which was common. It was one of his little teaching styles. He would ask questions, no one would answer. He said, okay, I guess I'll answer. And, and so uh, here was his response. Everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. We could call this the painful. Sometimes we have painful physical experiences. You know, we have injuries, we have uh, illness at times, we get aches. Eventually we all die, sometimes that's painful. We have emotional pain at times. We have sadness, we have distress, we have difficult interactions with people. We get irritated and angry and so forth. Sometimes that's the case. We have difficult thoughts. Thoughts we can call painful, maybe self-judgment or judging another or hatred or um, telling ourselves scary stories, telling ourselves negative stories. Very common, right? We all do that to a large extent. So we have painful experiences of that kind. We can have painful experiences related to not having been treated well, related to unfairness or injustice, right? We can be treated unfairly. So the Buddha said, all of us are vulnerable to such experiences. He said, having such pain is like being shot by an arrow. And he called this the first arrow. This is the first of the two arrows that he's going to be talking about. We all at times are shot by the first arrow, everyone. No matter how uh, awakened one is, no matter how beautiful or radiant a being one is, everyone is vulnerable to that kind of pain. The Buddha, when he was older, he had a bad back. Sometimes I imagine him, he would tell his assistant Ananda, Hey, Ananda, can you do the talk tonight? My back's really aching. We don't have evidence of that in the text. I imagine that. And so 
Um, everyone has that vulnerability to the first arrow. Uh, the Buddha said that how there is a distinction between the practitioner and the non-practitioner is that because of the first arrow, a non-practitioner will shoot a second arrow at himself or herself or oneself or at another person as if that would help. Right? As if that would help. That's the second arrow. Right? That is a second arrow. And so physically, sometimes when we have pain or unpleasant experiences, we tense. Right? We tense around it. We know that. And I think it's well known in the medical field that for certain kinds of chronic pain, the problem actually isn't the original pain, it's the tensing around it. As much as 80% of what people experience as pain in some forms of chronic pain is the tensing, the strain. That's the second arrow. That is why chronic pain was one of the first areas that uh, people worked with in applying mindfulness to the medical field. Because if you can learn to reduce that 80% to 40% or 30%, huge difference, right? That's where John Kabat-Zinn first intervened. Some of you know his name. He intervened at the University of Massachusetts Medical School doing that teaching. That's really making use of this teaching of the two arrows, right? And so we can see that physically. Emotionally, it's pretty clear probably if we look at our experience, right? We know that something difficult happens to me and I blame myself for the next two weeks or 30 years, right? Something happens, difficult relation with someone else, something negative happens, I shoot the second arrow at another person. I blame that person, I judge that person, if not, I actually do something physical, right? That's the second arrow. And... You know, the Buddha would said that the non-practitioner shoots the second arrow. And the non-practitioner means people who call themselves practitioners when they're not practicing, which means all of us, right? We're all, even if we have a practice, at times we shoot the second arrow. We do that mentally, right? Something difficult happens. We tell a negative story. We judge ourselves. We tell a scary story, you know? When I, I work one-on-one -on -one with people a lot, and the most common counsel that I give, people maybe report something difficult has happened, I tell them, watch for the shooting of the second arrow. Try to see it, not continue it. Right? And we also, I think you can start to see how this is very similar, if not identical, to the teaching of nonviolence. Right? because we do the same thing when there's injustice or unfairness. We may react, and I have received injustice, I have received pain, I have received oppression, I will react and oppress you, right? I will bring pain to you, I will be violent. Most of the conflicts in the world are people shooting second arrows at each other. So you can start to see where peacemaking goes with this. And you can also see, can you see how this is a core principle that applies all the way from our own private experience to the social realm? Isn't that interesting? 
that can unify our experience and our practice. That can give us a sense of my life can be seamless, organized around that sense of fundamental goodness and organized around a guideline for practice. You know, concretely that means that as our meditation practice, I want to actually study whenever I shoot the second arrow. We sometimes call that reactivity. You know, whether it's at a small level, I'm, you know, the uh, person in front of me at the stoplight is on a cell phone, I go, that's the second arrow, right? And I can study that. Doesn't mean the uh, doesn't mean being passive. I can still honk, but <laughs> with mindfulness, <laughs> you know, because uh, not shooting the second arrow is clear. Clear when you look at King or Gandhi, it doesn't mean being passive, right? Doesn't mean oh, just let them shoot the second arrow at me, and I'll just. Uh, it's not about that. It's about really the teaching is: can I respond rather than react? That's it. That is the essence in ordinary English of everything that we do at Spirit Rock. Can I respond rather than react? Meaning that I'm not driven compulsively. That I'm not driven by my habitual tendencies. So this is a lot, right? It's not easy. But this is what we do in practice. We study where we're reactive and we cultivate the qualities that make us less reactive, such as mindfulness. That's one of the main reasons we cultivate mindfulness because if we have mindfulness, we will catch ourselves starting to shoot the second arrow. If we don't have mindfulness, we'll just keep on being on automatic and we'll shoot the second arrows and then we'll say, you know, half a day later, what was that about? <laughs> right? So mindfulness is key. And as we look at this, we develop the wisdom and say, oh, there's another way. There's another way to work with this. Again, we also have to learn a variety of ways to respond skillfully when the first arrow has been shot. This is partly where Dr. King's nonviolence comes in. A lot of very skillful ways to work with that first arrow on the social level. And there are other ways, you know, we can, you know, I'm not going to go into so much now, but I work a lot with speech practice and communication. How do you speak? And some of you probably know the discipline of nonviolent communication which is very good at uh, looking at this area and actually was named explicitly to resonate with the nonviolence of King and Gandhi, right? For working with our speech. So you can work with your mind, your emotions, your speech. All this principle is at the heart of it. It goes a very, very long way. And anytime you have something difficult happen, just say, am I shooting the second arrow? Let me try not to. You know, that's it's a beginning way to look at things. So very, very powerful practice. And you can see again how it's very connected with the traditions of nonviolence. You know, this is from Dr. King. One must follow a consistent principle of non-injury. One must refuse to inflict injury on another. He said, the means must be as pure as the end. The end represents the means and process and the ideal in the making. Basically saying, you don't get to good ends by bad means. It can sometimes look like you do, but he's really saying it doesn't really work well. So you really have to cut that cycle of reactivity, um, cut the cycle of the first arrow leading to the second arrow. 
So that's really, that's the core principle that is really a wisdom principle. We apply it to our speech. What it means is that we can, uh, when we see an action done by someone else, very much the spirit of King or Gandhi that was unskillful, or something that we do that's unskillful, you know, very standard in nonviolence work is that you separate out the action from the person. And you question and maybe even criticize the action, but you hold the person as dear no matter what happens. Again, not easy practice with some situations. So I wanted to tell a personal story like this because I think my mom, uh, and to some extent my father, especially my mom, raised me with that principle. And I remember once she was uh, talking to my brother, and he was five years old, and she told me this story. And he was five years old, and he had done something that she didn't like. And she said to him, you know, I love you, but what you just did um, wasn't so good. Uh, But I really want to tell you that, you know, I really love you even though you did that. And he, he then immediately said, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Just spank me like other parents do. <laughs> but she, she was working with that principle, right? The principle is that you question the act. In Christian language, you question the sin, but not the sinner, right? That's how it echoes with Christian traditions. A very fundamental, very fundamental practice. And it really points to the last thing I want to talk about, which is the way that the quality of loving kindness or in the uh, Western traditions where we talk about love is at the center of all of this. It's another, there's always the, sometimes said that the Buddhist teachings are like a bird that flies with two wings. There's the wing of wisdom and there's the wing of compassion and love. And it can only fly with both wings. You have to have both aspects. And ultimately, we, they, they get integrated. So we have what Jack Kornfield calls the wise heart, you know, and so forth. So there's this emphasis also on the development of love. Right at the center of Buddhist tradition, we have the development of loving kindness or metta, and we can actually develop that systematically. We can practice it, in other words. We, it's really about bringing one's heart moment by moment to that sense of kindness. And we have very beautiful uh, methodologies for, for doing that. And in the Buddhist tradition, this quality of loving kindness, kindness, compassion, is thought to be appropriate to offer to every being, no matter what they've done. Quite a, can you imagine? I mean, I sometimes think, my gosh, look at that message. That message was given 25, 2600 years ago, and it's come through this idea that love, loving kindness can be at the center of one's life and universally applicable and that this has been a powerful notion that has informed most of the cultures of the world, right? One might think it would be really marginal, right? Who believes that? 
That's just wishful thinking, right? Listen to these words as describing that possibility. This is from the Buddha, from the, the, the text on the development of loving kindness, the Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. With a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. I find that amazing. He didn't say, cherish people who practice like us. He didn't say, cherish people who act appropriately. He said, all living beings. Now, the training for metta takes one through working with so-called difficult people, and you have to work up to it. Just to be clear, <laughs> there's, there's the working up to the really difficult people, so you start where it flows more easily. That's part of the training. But you do work up to it, you know, and it's not easy, you know. It's not easy to do, you know, times I... I once did a retreat of about five weeks doing loving kindness about 18 hours a day for five weeks. It works. Yeah. Some of you can come or maybe have been to our one-week retreats. Very wonderful to be around at the end of the week, I'll tell you. Really, <laughs> really nice. Uh, sometimes hard the first or second, third day, but end of the re- very nice. So I, I was really f- flowing, you know, the loving, uh, wonderful. And then, you know, about three and a half weeks into it, I, went, I started with my difficult person, who was a person at work who kind of was my, my nemesis, right? And, you know, it felt subjectively like when I started, shifted my attention from where it was really flowing to giving loving kindness to this one, all the three and a half weeks of momentum came to a grinding halt. <laughs> but I stayed with it, and after a few more hours, things got moving again, right? So it's not easy, and, uh, but it can be done. That's the aspiration. Isn't that interesting? That one can actually aspire to bring that quality of loving kindness to people for, with whom it doesn't come very easily, you know? And again, with, for Dr. King, in his language, love was at the center of the movement. You know, we may think of it as nonviolent action, being strategic. He talked about love all the time. Isn't that interesting, right? He said, love is understanding, redemptive, creative goodwill for all human beings. It is this idea, this whole ethic of love, which is the idea standing at the basis of the movement. And if you go back and look at the films, from the civil rights movement, I've always been deeply moved by seeing the faces, particularly of older African Americans who had known um, a lot of, lot of difficult things in their life, who were standing upright with dignity and without hatred. That's amazing. That's kind of a miracle, isn't it? It's kind of a miracle of the human heart. And that's what this is pointing to. The inner practice we do, the nonviolence, is all pointing towards that, you know, that kind of miracle. And I talked about how he had tremendous empathy for people who were on the opposite end of his struggle, you know, particularly white working-class people. And he emphasized that quality of empathy. So ultimately, this quality of love also was connected with the wisdom of understanding interconnection. 
that we're all more or less in this together. You know, again, a very, very common understanding. I'll just close with two readings, I think, from Dr. King. This is also from the letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Right? That's what it's pointing to. And of course, that's, that's not easy for us, right? We, we often can have a sense of, oh, I'm just here, right? You know? So that's something that, again, we cultivate that through practice. And I'll just close with this. This is really, uh, again, talking about the centrality of love. This call for a worldwide fellowship that, lists, that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, <clears throat> race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. Rather, I am speaking of that force which all of the great world religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. I think with that, I come back to that connection, really, with Buddhist practice. He talked that way. And he, he some of you know, he had a friendship in the last, uh, last year of his life. He met Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese teacher. And there are beautiful pictures of them together, you know. And um, he nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. They had a, quite a connection. And... And so he really had that sense that he was, even though he was in Christian tradition, he was really pointing beyond any particular religion to what I'm calling the shared heart of this approach. So we have some time for any uh, reflections or comments or questions, we can use the, uh, why don't you wait for a microphone so we can hear, hear well. Anyone like to, um, again, reflect, um, comment, question of any kind? We have one up front here. Hi. Um, hold, and hold the microphone when you speak pretty close to your mouth, like an ice cream cone. Okay. <laughs> um, can you, you brought up uh, initially, you mentioned Passover mm-hmm. and the connections there, and um, I'm not a Jewish faith, and I'm actually interested in what the key elements of Passover are that connect these ideas that you talked about tonight. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll say a few things. I'm, I'm uh, not the most deeply informed person on Jewish tradition. I know a fair amount. And there may be someone here who could add something. So I'll, so I'll, I'll say something and then someone might add something. Uh, for me, it's really, uh, for many people, Passover is the favorite Jewish holiday. Uh, it's, it's about liberation. You know, and it's about uh, the dimension of liberation as part of spirituality. And um, it also, I think, is related to a quality of um, confidence or faith that even when things are difficult, there are, again, this goes back to that notion of in, our, our, our depths, our, of, uh, uh, our good. Or, you know, uh, King talked about this as he was, I think, quoting a Unitarian minister who said the, said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it points towards justice. So I think there's an element of even when things are very difficult, there can be some confidence or faith. Very important now, right? Very important in the next years to have that sense. So that's an element. And there's also, I think, I, I connected a lot with the prophetic traditions you know, of the way that the deepest mystical understanding is connected with the impetus towards justice that we find with the Jewish prophets, with Jesus, with any number of figures up through King and so forth. Yeah, those are some of the, where my mind goes. Does anyone want to add to that? Anyone cap- can do that? Um, I actually had a few things I wanted to comment on. Uh, I recently heard somebody say that uh, the person who beats the dog deserves more prayer than the dog. Yeah. And that really tripped me out, but I think that relates to what you're saying. I wanted you to comment on that, if you would. And um, what was the other one I had? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Why is it that... Uh, why is it seems like everybody like King and Jesus, everybody you talked about, everybody who stands up, who has a powerful voice and is able, able to touch many, unlike us who are able to touch few, who sta- stand out and say that love is the answer, are all killed. <laughs> mm. Not to be depressing. but Yeah. yeah. And you, your first comment was that the person who feeds the dog is... Beats the dog. Who beats the dog. Beats the dog. Deserves more prayer than the dog. Oh, more... Prayer than the dog, yeah. I mean, it's that's that would uh, the person who beats the dog deserves more prayer than the dog. Uh, probably a lot more prayer. Yeah, I mean, it's really pointing to that same teaching that I was giving that the ultimately the heart is there for everyone. Understanding that for some people it's hard to some people, some beings, some dogs, it's hard to go there, right? Because of what they do. And so we can, again, I always like to think of this as more intermediate or advanced practice. You always work up. That's why we have a practice. You work up to the difficult situations, right? Then in terms of the question of why are they killed, um, yeah, I I don't know if I have a a quick quick answer. I don't know if there is any any ultimate answer. where my mind goes with that is that uh, in the current time, to me, it points to the necessity of having many, many, many leaders and not relying so much on a charismatic leader. 
that that's very important in our time because it is possible for uh, repressive forces or just people who are crazy to uh, take out leaders, right? When you have a movement that has a huge number of leaders, that is leaderful, as is sometimes said, one can't do that. And you can look at history and see that, right? You can see that uh, that's possible. And I think that our times are more like that. That we're most likely, I mean, we, there are charismatic leaders, but we probably, it's probably not very wise to wait for a, another Dr. King or to wait for a leader, but rather to uh, have large numbers of people who are very, very capable. That's why I like the sense of practice, you know, that inner practice, because we can keep developing all the time, right? And as we do that, we become, we develop these qualities that, that are actually qualities of a leader. We develop strength, confidence, wisdom, big hearts, and so forth. And all of us can do that in a, in a very high degree. Yeah. So other points, and again, if anyone has a little more amplification of Passover, that would be welcome. Yeah. Hi. Um, can you comment on... Uh, you had alluded to the fact that all religions have like the same basic tenets and yeah but none of the leaders can step up to the plate and and agree and join or yeah. it, it, it's very very frustrating yeah that's an interesting question um, i think you know one of my mentors was uh, houston smith some of you know him. We actually, he actually died at the end of last year. We had a memorial just about uh, nine days ago at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And for those who don't know him, he's a wonderful person to get to know because he was one of the clearest uh, spokespersons for the sense of the uh, mystical core of all religions as being very, very close, if not identical. Now, the mainstream expressions of religion are not necessarily, don't necessarily have much room for the mystical dimensions, right? And so they will not necessarily see. So there's almost like in spirituality or religion, there's almost like a developmental path. And at certain lower or intermediate parts of the path, it's more, I'm right, they're wrong, right? It's more tribal or more, um, more um, self-righteous or doesn't have that sense of the unity. When you, when you look to, to many of the mystical traditions, you can look through history. <clears throat> you know, you can look, for example, way back a thousand years ago in... Uh, North Africa, even the Middle East then, the people who were the Jewish mystics and the Christian mystics and the Muslim mystics, they, hang, they hung out together. They respected each other's traditions. You look at you know, someone like Rumi, for example. Many of you know Rumi's work. He'd be an example of that. There was, you know, and, and you can find him speaking extremely respectfully of other religions in those texts. Okay, we have a Muslim poet who is the most, who is the best-selling poet in America, Okay. Someone, someone send Rumi to some of our politicians for a present. 
Okay, so I think it's, uh, it's something that is coming more into being now. I think that is a potential that is increasingly there. But people have to be educated, and I think when we, it has to depend on the inner dimension of religion being very alive. And simply put, in many, many religions, including the one I grew up with, that was not the case. Right? It was about more like community, following rules, social dimension. can be very important, but not that's not going to take you to understanding the uh, connection between traditions. That's a quick answer. Read Houston Smith. See him on YouTube. <laughs> he, he did a five-hour program with Bill Moyers on PBS once. An amazing program. It's on, a lot of it's on YouTube. Okay, I got in my obligatory YouTube reference for Dharma Talk. Okay, okay maybe time for one more, and then we'll have to, have to close. Anyone else have anything you'd like to say or ask? Okay. Hi, thank you. Um, I was, I was kind of curious as to um, your motivation behind um, talking about Dr. King tonight. Yeah. If there was a certain world, uh, you know, area that you were, you know, uh, interested in or or had a personal feeling towards something yeah. um, domestic or foreign or... Yeah, clarify that a little more. Yeah, I, yeah. I, just, I just felt like whenever I hear people talking about Dr. King, they're kind of um, pulling from something personally as well. Yeah. Because he's so, you know... Well, it's been, he's been... His work and the traditions have been very important personally, you know. And um, I think what I was pointing to really, uh, especially was the, the, the way in which Buddhist practice and the nonviolence of King and Gandhi and others is an amazing fit together. That they both have resources which the other doesn't have. And that it's a very important uh, kind of integration for our time. So that's, I think, my main motivation is to help illuminate that, clarify that. I think you can see that really clearly through the emphasis on the, I think the three main areas I looked at, which was the what are the depths of human nature and the sense of the goodness of human nature. Secondly, that teaching of the two arrows and how do you break the cycles of reactivity, of violence, and so forth. And then thirdly, the emphasis on the kind heart, compassion, love. And uh, yeah, it's been, you know, his work is kind of a, you know, one of my North Stars. And again, there is the personal connection with my family. They, they uh, were at the march. They weren't just at the march. They were actually um, among the people walking at the beginning of the march, and they sat 10 feet away from Dr. King. Right? And again, I, I just wish I hadn't said, okay, I just want to play. Because we lived in the D.C. area, you see, so could have gone, but I think I've, I've done okay. So... Uh, yeah, so there is, there is a personal resonance. Again, I, and I've met and studied with some of his uh, lieutenants, some of the people who work closely with him. So I've heard, like again, particularly people like James Lawson, some of you may know uh, his work. He lives in L.A. still. He's in early 80s now. And, uh, yeah, and been very inspired by that material, you know, and... Uh, a lot of amazing stories, material. I've read a lot of the biographies, prob- probably like a lot of you, and 
just amazing uh, inspiration. And I do, I do believe, you know, like I quoted uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, as saying that how the uh, future of America depends on how it really responds or relates to this legacy. I think there's truth to that. A lot of people have said that King is the most significant moral and spiritual figure in American history. A lot of people with a lot of knowledge have made that claim. I think that I agree with that. You know, and so there's something very powerful. You know, imperfect, imperfect person. We know a lot of the faults, but there's something very, very powerful there that I think it's very much worth one's while to study his life, read books about him, study, you know, as well the life and work of Gandhi. And uh, there are a lot of trainers, you know. I have a colleague who I'm teaching with in September, Kazu. Uh, Kazu teaches in the East Bay, does a lot of workshops on nonviolence. Look up his name, K-A-Z-U-H-A-G-A. He's connected with the East Point Academy. A lot of trainings in nonviolence, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, good work being done, especially in the Bay Area. So, you know, find opportunities to learn more, I would say. It's really good material. Connect it with your Buddhist practice. It's very, very rich. It's, I think, what we need to be, uh, have that, uh, reach that 3.5%, okay? We'll have a sign-up sheet if you want to be part of the 3.5% in the back of the room. No, just, just joking. Okay, but think about that. So let's, let's finish. Thank you, thank you for that. And let's, let's just finish with uh, uh, just a moment. Set your intention, anything that you know, just for yourself that comes out of our evening, any intention that you have coming out of the evening of any kind. doesn't have to be related to the theme. could be something else, just about maybe a personal circumstance. What intention comes out of our time together? And then we close with the dedication of merit. And if you want to put your hands together, that's fine, not necessary. It's often done traditionally. We remember that we meet, we practice very much for ourselves, but we also remember the horizon of our practice, that it's there very much to help others. And ultimately, we offer the benefits of our evening to all beings always remembering that we are part of all beings. So, so thank you again for your, for your attention and uh, for your own practice. Um, so thank you very much and until next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.